It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams, and I am so glad that you made it to class this morning. This morning, we are beginning a series talking about climate change. Now, while the United States was only out of the worldwide global climate pact for 107 days, this past Friday, we officially rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. On his first day in office, President Biden signed an executive order reversing the actions of our ex and as a whole host of measures to pull back that were put in place by the Orange Menace. Under President Obama, there were initiatives to rein in the oil and gas industries. There were efforts to reduce coal emissions and restrict drilling on federal land and in water sources. But our ex got rid of all of that. And the new administration will not have to only roll those things back, but they will also have to set new targets on reducing fossil fuel emissions. Now, all of that work is happening on the federal level. That's what the federal government needs to do. What can we, the people, do as it pertains to climate change or climate justice? As with any issue, there are actions happening on the federal level. There are also actions happening on the state and local level. According to the Center for American Progress and the League of Conservation Voters, there are only about 15 states and territories who have taken legislative or executive action to move towards a 100% energy future. And places like Washington, D.C., and Puerto Rico, they've passed legislation to implement 100% clean electricity policies, along with greenhouse gas pollution reduction programs. So who are all of these efforts led by? While state and local governments are certainly passing the legislation and debating and determining what needs to, what standards needs to be set, there are advocates and community organizations on the ground who are powering these movements. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I'm going to bring one of those advocates to the front of the class to give us a primer on people-powered climate justice. We'll be back with more of Sunday Civics. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the teacher? Welcome back to Sunday Civics. This morning we are talking about people-powered climate justice, and I am beyond delighted to bring to the front of the class Elizabeth Yampierre, who I have been trying to get on the show maybe at least a year. <laughs> she is the co-chair of the Climate Justice Alliance, a national-led organization. She's executive director of Uprose, Brooklyn's oldest Latino community-based organization. She was the opening speaker for the first White House Council on Environmental Quality Forum on Environmental Justice under President Obama, not our ex, and recently featured in the New York Times as a visionary paving the way to climate justice. Welcome to the front of the class, Elizabeth Yampierre. Hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be here with you today. Um, this is really exciting. Thank you. Yeah. 
Yes, no problem. As you know, I've been trying to get you on the show for a year to talk about this. And I deliberately did not, you know, I've uh, other people approached me about doing a show on the Green New Deal, about doing a, sh a show on climate justice and everything. And I was like, nope, not until I get Elizabeth on the show. <laughs> so I have deliberately held having this conversation until you could give us the lesson first. Because you understand civics and you know that there is no Green New Deal if if, if you don't have the re real deal at the table, which means that it's got to be centered on racial justice and on the struggle of our communities. So so thank you for that. Thank you for understanding that, because that is something lost on our communities. They, they don't really uh, get sometimes how um, climate change is going to affect our communities more than any other. So so thank you for that. No um, problem. Now, since this is your first time on the show, as you know, we believe in the power of storytelling, you know, how our people do. So I wanted you to start by telling us the story of your first civic action. Uh, my first civic action. For, first, I have to say that I grew up in a home uh, where there were because I, I grew up in, a, in an Orisha family with people from Jamaica, from Cuba, from 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 Brazil, from Puerto Rico. Um, and so there was already a consciousness about blackness and, and about the African diaspora. And I think my first attempt at an action, I was little and the young lords were marching at the Puerto Rican Day Parade and I wanted so much to follow them and my aunt didn't let me. Years later, there was a big protest in front of the Grace Building on 42nd Street. I was walking through on my way to an interview and I saw an enormous Puerto Rican flag. And so I went and marched with them. I had no idea what they were protesting. I was like, okay, these are my people, I'm gonna join them. Um, and a lot of the folks that were leading that demonstration later became my mentors, um, like Richie Perez, Esperanza Maltel. So, um, so yeah, and, and from there, uh, started organizing against racial violence and police brutality, you know, uh, which was a serious problem uh, during Giuliani years. Um, but early on, uh, I think we were really sort of anchored uh, in understanding uh, that we were descendants of the African diaspora at home and that those were our friends and our family and our community. And, uh, and so, uh, so it feels like resistance started at a really early age. <laughs> It seems like it was, you know, embedded in your soul, embedded embedded in your spirit already. You know, me having a similar background growing up with family that are at our center, truly faith-based and God-centered and also community-centered and justice-centered. And so it's amazing how you kind of gravitate um, toward, you know, you sort of find your tribe, you find your people and your purpose in that aspect. So thank you so much for sharing that, um, sharing that story. So I want to go back to something you said just in the open about, you know, climate justice being your focus of your work on people of color, well, not people of color, I'm trying to change my phrasing. So on African descendant people and indigenous communities, I'm trying to change my, <laughs> my <laughs> phrasing so I could be deliberate in who I'm talking about. So I feel as if climate justice is just a new phrase of organizing that we know people of the African diaspora have been focused on for some time. It's just a, a new packaging 
I remember stories about communities in rural areas fighting on air quality. I remember conversations of indigenous communities talking about the overuse of uh, public land and natural land. I remember those from childhood. I don't remember it being phrased as climate justice or, you know, climate change in that in that aspect. How did start us from the beginning in terms Mm. of the climate justice movement? how it's become rebranded, if you will, and not centered from these communities that we know have always been focused on these issues. So, so it's, it's really, it's great that you understand that this is something that has a long legacy that our people, people of African and indigenous ancestry have always honored mother earth. We live within our carbon footprint and that um, climate change comes from a history of greed, of extraction of our lands and of our labor. Uh, it starts in slave quarters when um, slave when the enslaved have the worst food, the worst land to work, uh, the worst health conditions. That's environment, right? That's environmental racism, and so even our health disparities begin early on, going back to our ancestors. And it's a legacy of not having the things that we need or being in an environment that is healthy, that is consistent with our cultural values, uh, that has resulted in things like COVID and some of the problems that we have today. Um, The term climate justice is kind of like the terms that we're all coming up with. We're trying to find names for things so that we could put a branding on a framework that comes out of the front line, the people most impacted, so that people can have a shared understanding of the history uh, of of what we're doing to change that and how we are going to manifest a, a future that we envision. So climate justice is really the intersection of racial injustice and climate change. And so it's hard sometimes because our communities think, okay, I'm not environmentalist, I'm not, a, I'm not a tree hugger. Uh, but for those of us who come from the environmental justice movement, you know, trees were the thing that would clean up the environment so that we could breathe. Particularly those of us with asthma, upper respiratory disease, and the health disparities that come from living in communities that have been discriminatorily cited with environmental burdens, infrastructure that kills us but serves the most privileged people, right? And that's not just true in the Bronx. And in, and, in, and in Brooklyn, you know, that's true. If you go to Port Arthur, you go to Houston and you see communities of color surrounded by petrochemical industries, that was intentional. That was providing the most privileged people with access to energy, with food, with the things that they needed, but putting all the polluting and nasty infrastructure in the communities that they thought were powerless to fight that siting. And so that has resulted in what we call environmental justice, right? The the fight against that. Um, And then uh, climate justice, the fact that that, that climate change is the angry child of history, of a history of extraction, a history of colonialism, a history of white supremacy. So Mother Earth is just basically saying, I'm done, I'm kind of done with this. Um, and it's affecting those countries and those people who have always been um who have always been put in harm's way. So you're seeing it in Africa and the river Niger where it's completely contaminated because of US corporations and what they've done to ecosystems there, right? And you're seeing it in the Caribbean that was hit by Hurricane Maria, a Cat 5 hurricane in an island that has been colonized for over hundred years. And the Gulf South where people of African ancestry uh, have been uprooted and pushed out of New Orleans and places like that. Um, 
from their ancestral lands, right? Because that's that's what their ancestral land here in the United States, and then displaced by FEMA, and 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 the build back has resulted in in um and them really pushing gentrification and providing uh, the environmental amenities to the white communities that have moved in, but never gave them to those that had been there for generations. So these things are connected to us for us. Uh, you know, where we live, pray, play, all of it for us is environment. And and you're absolutely right. Um, you know, our ancestors, our grandmothers, right? They honored Mother Earth. They repurposed, they recycled. Nothing makes you recycle and repurpose more than need, than coming from need and necessity. So we've always been dealing with that. Um, but um, but yeah, it's 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 uh, the language is that a just transition, a just recovery, justice at the core, at the center, centering racial justice, and we believe that you can't address climate change without addressing climate, without addressing racial justice. I think that's an important primer and context to give us, particularly as you mentioned that we do have a history in every movement, in every <laughs> area you can think of, people of the African diaspora have been a part of those <laughs> movements. And, and first I wanna, for one piece of that you were talking about the, the tree hugger moniker. I can remember making jokes of, you know, I went to high school in California and I remember making jokes about the tree huggers or the backpackers, all right? And these were normally looking, you know, white sometimes, you know, what's a nice word? I don't want to say dirty looking, but like, <laughs> you Granola know. Granola eating, Birkstock wearing mm -hmm. folks um, that cared a lot about the environment. Yeah. And I didn't put them in the same context, as you mentioned, as my grandmother or great aunts who, as you mentioned, were recycling by necessity. Like say, you know, we make jokes now about our family saving jars and tubs and, you know, things of that nature. Or, or going to the store with their own bags. I think about a number of my friends whose family were from the Caribbean, from the continent, and even from China, Japan, or um, the other communities. And they go shopping with their own bags, their own jars, and not take... I didn't put them in the same category as the Birkenstock wearing granola eating people. No, no, because we've always lived within our with what we need and not with what we want. We didn't have the luxury. And this country is a throwaway culture. It's about creating more garbage, success, feeling good is about having more and more and more and more. And we had to live with what we needed and not with what we wanted because we needed, we had to, we had to survive. Um, you know, people forget uh, all of the challenges that people before us went through. Um, and, uh, you know, my grandmother lost half her children to hunger and disease in Puerto Rico in, in, uh, in, a, in, a, in what was called a slum in an area that uh, folks, the land had been taken over by U.S. businesses, the agricultural land, and people were had, had to migrate to another part of the island. And she lived in this place uh, called El Fanguito with open sewers and half her children died. And she came to live in the United States and she saved everything. She fed us a lot. <laughs> she fed us a lot. She wanted to, to fatten us up. And, um, and she grew everything from thalo cans, you know, um, so she repurposed everything. That's that's our history coming from struggle. And, um, but but not, even if it wasn't that we were coming from struggle, the truth is that if you go further back uh, to before we were colonized, we, our people were people who honored Mother Earth. Um, and so, um, so environment was everything. 
Um, the difference between us and the environmentalists is that the, the environmentalists have for 50 years been thinking about conservation, open space, wildlife. We center uh, addressing uh, Mother Earth by making sure we take care of the people. Um, and, and taking care of the people means honoring Mother Earth. Uh, but the people are important. They're not expendable. Only people who have the luxury to have open space or think about promenades or to think about recycled goods that cost a fortune, think about environment in a silo. Even that is extractive. The fact that they have the luxury of thinking about it as a commodity instead of something central to life. Uh, there are some core values that are different and that are rooted in our traditions as people of African and indigenous ancestry. So you're right. You remember that. And those are the messages and the stories that were passed on to us by our elders. Um, and this movement, the climate justice movement and the environmental justice movement is intergenerational. That's also something that's really different for us. Uh, in the United States, uh, because it's competitive and capitalist, you see generations pitted against each other where young people say they leave and they push older people out and older people wanna hold on to power. But in our communities, community is intergenerational. We learn across the table from each other. We build from each other. We take care of our elders. Um, it's, it's a very different, we have a very different way of thinking about people and the planet. And so, um, so we come from a different place when we're thinking about how we honor Mother Earth because we don't, uh, we, it's, it's the way that we honor our people and take care of our people. You know, to that point, you know, I think of, as you mentioned, not that there is, that everybody has this separation, but you talk about the luxury to think about open space or that, whereas other communities are community centered in the diaspora are thinking about clean air, clean water, clean uh, earth, right? So they're in the ground and versus, you know, we need more parks and more green space. And, the, and yes, all of that is included in the movement now, but people of the diaspora seem to be focused on air, water, and the earth itself. And I, I, I'm saying the, the earth because I remember my grandmother testing the quality of the earth by putting her hands in it and then hold, you know, like holding it and sometimes tasting it. And I always thought that was weird. <laughs> I was just like, why are you tasting dirt? You know, but that's sort of the, her being able to see, oh, this is good. This is good ground or this is fertile ground. Um, versus again, this conversation of, how much green space do we have and plan parks and as you mentioned promenades and it, it it seems that the i guess because it's in urban areas we're trying to think about like that kind of open space piece rather than thinking about the basics because i think about the bronx here in New York City. And yes, we're in an urban area. The amount of space we have is confined. And I, I want to talk about in a minute about climate change as sort of being borderless. But, you know, the Bronx and Brownsville that have high, you know, rates of asthma because of the air quality, right? Mm -hmm. And that there is a basic, while people are thinking about parks and promenades, there is the very basic of the air quality to be able to walk freely in your community and not be sickened by the very air that you breathe. That's right. Uh, you know, my father passed from an asthma attack when he was about 52 years old. And I was born and raised in EJ communities. And I went into this work because I felt that um, I couldn't fight for against police brutality. I couldn't fight for racial justice if I couldn't breathe. That breathing was the most fundamental thing. The truth is that our communities want open space. They deserve open space. They deserve to have the environmental amenities that exist in privileged communities. Um, 
But sometimes and often what happens when we are successful in getting those amenities, um, those amenities are then used by developers to, to promote our displacement. And so there's this, uh, this sort of this underlying thing that um, we have to live in the middle of toxic exposure if we're even going to be able to afford to live in the places that we live, that um, these environmental amenities are for the privilege. And you see that, you, know, you see that not just in New York, but a, a great place to look at that is in New Orleans, where basically all of a sudden um, communities that were, um, you know, uh, transit deserts got all these um, transportation amenities when Black people were pushed out and they were moved to Houston, where then they were hit by Hurricane Andrew uh, in the midst of, you know, right, surrounded by petrochemical industries. So, so it's it's almost like uh, like these things are not things that we deserve, and it's and we need them. We need them to breathe. We need open space so that you know the truth is that trees actually calm us down. And with a legacy of having to live between all of the isms and the stress that comes from poverty and struggle, generation after generation, our community has underlying mental health issues, and we need to have green space. We need open space just so that we could uh, breathe deeper and and feel at ease. Um, but even that costs us, it costs us our homes. So um, so there's that tension um, between, you know, I, we actually had someone who said, oh, if I fight, if I fight to shut down the waste transfer station in my community, the, the value of the homes is gonna go up and I'm not gonna be able to live here anymore. Imagine, imagine people having to choose between uh, toxic exposure um, and affordability that's the reality in our communities. And so, you know, while the environmentalists have been fighting for 50 years um, uh, for, for open space and for all of these things, our communities have been dealing with 500 here in this country. So, uh, so it, it's, it's, it, the, the, the fight is old and it's complex and, um, and it is intersectional. It really is like, you know, when you're thinking about um, whether no matter what you're doing, regardless of what your field is, it's going to be affected by climate change. Your health is going to be affected by the environment. And so it is an issue that is our issue. It's, our, it's, it's literally the human rights issue of our time. So, um, so yeah, it, this issue of open space versus being in a densely urban community, um, it's hard for us. It's hard because we literally get pushed out when we get trees, when we get parks, uh, when we hook the neighborhood up. All of a sudden, we can't afford to live there. Hmm. You know, uh, I wanted to get to this conversation about, you know, we know that the borders created for cities, for states, and even countries are man-made, right? Um, and something in terms, as it pertains to our air, land, and water, you know, Mother Nature cares not of borders. <laughs> so even if you are in another state and you believe that, oh, we have enough space, our air quality is, you know, great. We don't contribute. We have the best. And I don't know if uh, if you want to say what states sort of stand arrest the top um, or country stand on the top in terms of uh, climate justice. Well, you know, that's all well and good. But if the state next to you or the country next to you is not doing any of that, that is going to affect the, the climate, that is going to affect the earth, that is going to affect the air 
around you anyway. And so what then do we do when you have, you know, someone like our ex-president who decides to like pull us out of an agreement with other states to sort of create a baseline, not that it was perfect, but <laughs> sort of create sure. a baseline of where we want to be or even a collection of areas. So I'm thinking, you know, our AMI for housing is New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, right? Because we're right on top of each other. Just thinking about... we we would need to do some agreement amongst the three states because we're breathing the same air. <laughs> you know, we're using the, 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 the same resources and materials. H how do you do that? Adding the political complications, adding, you know, um, people, you know, ego, adding all of that when we're just trying to, you know, as you say, breathe <laughs> first. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's hard, but you know there are sacrifice zones. There are hot spots in our communities. So there are some communities that are more um, where there are more people with asthma, upper respiratory disease, and health disparities than others. And those are the communities that really have um, sort of a cluster of uh, of environmental uh, of facilities and, and infrastructure that pollutes. Like you see that in the South Bronx and in Williamsburg and in Sunset Park, right? And in places like Newark, New Jersey. Because we're part of a movement, it's really important for us that we not be NIMBY, that we not be pushing policies that only benefit our communities, but benefit all of our communities, right? So for example, when we were talking about solid waste and moving the garbage that comes out of New York, it was really important to us that our garbage didn't go to Newark, New Jersey or to Jersey City. Um, there was even talks about moving the garbage to Haiti uh, and that blew our minds. It felt to us like our people are our people wherever they live. And so, so you're right, there has to be more coordination and collaboration across, across lines. Um, but, but that's why we have these climate justice movement. That's why we have the environmental justice movement, uh, because we work together to share policies, to share data and research, and to put out um, recommendations that benefit our, all our communities. This past administration didn't just um, pull out of the Paris Accords. They also deregulated um, protections for children, like children who were exposed to all kinds of toxics and toxicants. Uh, it was brutal uh, what they were trying to do and what they got away with doing. And so, um, so, so yeah, it, who, you know, the question for us really is who is the most vulnerable? Who are the people that are going to be most impacted as a result of the change in regulations and policies? Not everybody gets, have. it doesn't happen the same for everybody. Some people do have access to clean water and clean air and have other opportunities. If disaster lands in their town, they have places to go. But those people who are the descendants of extraction, the descendants of enslavement and colonialism, those people, their bodies, um, their health is already more vulnerable. Um, they're more vulnerable to extreme weather events and to toxics because of the history of exposure over generations and over the history of stress over generations. And so, um, so we focus on them as a movement, as, as a, someone who's part of the climate justice movement. My concern, my priority is the people who are most impacted by climate change, the ones that are most vulnerable, the ones who are least responsible for creating them. And that's black, indigenous, and people of color. And so, and we're very specific because for example, you, you, you talked about how the air is, is contaminated everywhere. Black communities, regardless of income, because people always say it's low income people, but black communities, regardless of income, are more likely to live next to environmental abuses 
than other folks, regardless of income, because that's what environmental racism is. So if you go to California and you go to Black Hollywood, you're going to see fracking happening in the backyard or in the backs of where Black Hollywood lives. You're not going to see that uh, where white folks are living in Hollywood. So, um, so for our folks, even when it, it isn't like income suddenly protects us uh, from environmental racism. So as a movement, um, we work really hard to make sure that, um, that we're not pitted against each other and that we're looking out for all of our communities wherever they are. So often when I talk, I talk about not just what's happened in Sunset Park in Brooklyn, but I want people to know about Detroit. I want people to know about Port Arthur, Texas and about um, Liberty City in Miami. And I want them to know about you know, the Caribbean and, and what is happening to the Caribbean because of sea level rise. Um, it's important for us to do that. Um, because I think that people re don't realize that not only do we live all over the country, uh, but we're all we we all have to be, work with each other because this this climate change is, is huge and, and we have to approach it with humility. It is complex and it needs all of us to be able to work with each other and look out for the most vulnerable. Um, also, really care about our young people and our elders um, and um, and those relationships that we have with each other. That's the source of our strength. I, I want you to expand upon that a bit because you talk about um, intergenerational leadership and there are always tensions in every issues that we've talked about on this show. You know, people like to bring talk about if they're older, they're talking about how young people need to get more involved. If you're talking to younger people, they're talking about how older people either need to be supportive or get out of the way. We've sort of adopted this American dream language of, you know, excess, as you talk about, like we, when you adopt into that American dream, it's also adopting into, you know, I need to buy everything I, rather than conserve, rather than recycle. It's just like, go big or go home. You either have the, you know, once you get the wealth, you have the the McMansion, you do, you know, so it's always grand, you know, grander and, and, and sort of stripping resources rather than how um, you can, or selling the message that you can also prosper if your community also prospers, if you conserve, if you, you know, invest in, right? We've, we've adopted into that capitalistic behavior in terms of what the, the dream is. But at the same time, we've adopted the Americanism of this tension between generations, which, as you mentioned, is new for us <laughs> because that's not, you know, there have been tensions in terms of leadership regarding generations, but certainly not in terms of movements. There have always been these intergenerational spaces within our families, within our communities, and within our movements. And, you know, being in a foreign place still, right, you still adopting the these you know, ideals that are not inherently our own. Right. Yeah, I, I think I think you're absolutely right that American culture, uh, that the American dream is an extractive dream. It's a dream about uh, competition instead of collaboration. And what's happened to our folks, and and this is where it becomes a little a little uh, complicated. What's happened to our folks is that. Um, because for generations they haven't had things, they want things. And I would not be someone who would judge someone who wants, you know, 30 pairs of shoes or needs that new bag or, you know, wants to, 
make themselves look beautiful because adorning ourselves is not only part of our traditions and part of our culture, um, but it is also the thing that sort of medicates us in the face of having to struggle uh, with so many things. Environmentalists like to judge us and say things like, well, you know, they've got an SUV outside of public housing. Um, they can judge us because they have a summer home and they have places to go to and they have open space and they've always had what they needed. And for them, um, not not dressing up is a choice. When we were in college and when we were in law school, wherever we went, we always had to be the best dressed. We had to look a particular way because as people of color, we knew we were going to be treated differently. And we were taught from the time that we were children that we needed to make sure that we always had our best shoes on and that we looked great. And so now people want to judge us for wanting things uh, and we need those things in order to just be treated with a semblance of equality. Um, and also because on a spiritual and psychological level, those are the things that make us feel good because we just didn't grow up with things. So um, so there's that. There's that complication, that little wrinkle, right, in excessiveness and, and now sort of uh, realizing that we can no longer, that we have to really live with what we want and with what we need and not with what we want. Um, the thing about age, ageism in this country is that they fetishize young people, right? And then they infantilize them. They infantilize them, um, but they don't see their power. And then young people become competitive and extractive and want to push older people out. Um, and the solutions to any problem exists in that intergenerational power, right? Uh, in my organization, we have uh, really young people. And I sometimes come in thinking that I have the answers to something and, I'm and someone will say something and I'll be like, you know what, that's a better answer. And in the interest of justice and, in the, and, and out of humility, you have to say if, if a 19-year-old walks in the room and has a better, a better solution, you have to embrace that solution. And a 19-year-old has to listen to one of us and say, okay, there's wisdom in that. She's teaching me how to politically read the room so that I can be more nimble, so that I can move faster. So, But in this country, it's really... Um, you know, movements, uh, young people of color in particular, they, le they led the civil rights movement. In South Africa, they led that movement. Um, young people of color have led the environmental justice and climate justice movement for generations because they didn't do it because suddenly they had a woke moment um, and they, they realized the planet was melting. They did because, you know, their elders uh, couldn't breathe. Um, their families were on dialysis. They did that because because they had to do it because they didn't have, it wasn't like they could do this. It wasn't something that, you know, they could take off from school and protest climate change because if our young people take off from school to protest climate change, they call the truant officer after them. So, um, so for our young people to do this work is a sacrifice and they have been doing it. They've been leading and these movements have all been intergenerational. We embrace that. We completely embrace that, you know, because it literally, um, you know, we started when I started this work, I was like in my 20s. Right. Um, and so the fact that we've got young people stepping up and uh, and leading and, and sharing um, data collection, how to do GIS mapping, some of the skills that they have that we never learned uh, in school or didn't even know was something that we could learn. That only makes us more powerful. That only makes us smarter and makes it possible for us to go deeper and move faster uh, in the face of climate change. So you saw that with Black Lives Matter. How could you not watch what Black Lives Matter did and not sit back with pride and say, those are the descendants of the civil rights movement um, and look at what they've done. Uh, they've literally rewritten everything. So, um, 
So you have to embrace that and you have to uh, work in intergenerational relationship. We have at our office, a young woman, Naisha Mallet, who's 19. She's spoken at the United Nations. She spoke at the COP. Uh, she's a second year student at Cooper Union. She's an artist who integrates uh, justice into her artwork. Um, and when she speaks, she speaks with the wisdom of, of someone so much older. And how can I not listen and be led by that? We have to be leaderful and we have to be intergenerational and we need to approach climate change with humility. And that requires that all of us be at the table and work with each other in ways that, that, um, that, that make it possible for all of us to walk in our power. Now, our, our elected leaders, our, our representatives, not only on the local level, but on the federal level, are they helping at all? Or are they just using talking points? And <laughs> Yes and no. Uh, yes and no. I think that we are in a different time where they are, they are being forced to pivot um, and they can't ignore uh, the consciousness on the ground and what people are demanding. And so they're being forced. The type of conventional governance, which is patriarchal, where you've got an elected official who runs on the backs of the work done by activists on the ground, that time is kind of over. What we're demanding really is co-governance, radical governance. People who are in community are listening to folks and are really investing locally so that people can be civically engaged on another level. Um, climate change is going to demand that our communities are civically engaged at a much more heightened level because God forbid something happens in Brooklyn and all the resources are in Brooklyn and then all of a sudden something happens in the Bronx and people have to fend for themselves. People yeah. need to be able to have social cohesion, have the skills and the resources to be able to step up into leadership. And so what you're seeing now a different kind of governance. You see it from Ayanna Presley, you're seeing it from AOC, uh, you're seeing it from a number of mostly women, radical women of color who are leading with a courage, uh, but are also really um, deeply um, focusing on deep democracy and are super smart, like they are hella smart. Um, and uh, But they're getting their marching orders and they're getting their talking points and their information from people who've been holding it down on the ground. Yeah. And so that's a different kind of governance. And, and we're seeing that is now becoming more and more in trend. And that is a really exciting thing. Uh, that's what our expectation is that our leaders understand that they're accountable to a base and that we are a resource, that we're not just people to be managed, but we're a resource and that there's no way they could understand all the issues, but that collectively we can pretty much cover everything that comes at us. So um, so we're seeing that happening on the local level, on statewide level um, and, and nationally. Also the legislation that's coming out nationally um, has our fingerprints all over it. It is centering frontline communities and frontline solutions and it's moving funding to, front, to the frontline. Um, that wasn't the way it was before. Before the funding would go to big greens, to multi-million dollar organizations um, to basically do the work and we would be considered the people who did outreach, right? Mm -hmm. um, that has changed. People know that we're the ones that are transferring the landscape, passing, making legislation happen, we are the ones that are actually operationalizing solutions, uh, frontline solutions. So, so that's changing too, and 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 that's that's really cool. That's really exciting. Very people powered. So, lastly, the the last thing I will ask you is, what recommendations do you have for people who are listening um, to you right now on how they can get civically engaged on climate justice 
uh, today. They haven't started. They care. They, you know, they want to do something. What can they do? Well, first, I would love for them to go to the Climate Justice Alliance website and read about a just transition, a just recovery, what that means, what the principles of the climate justice movement are, the Hermes principles, how we believe in, in self-transformation and building just relationships so that we can have collective power. And then go through, scroll through and identify organizations that exist in your neighborhood. And instead of creating new coalitions and new organizations, find out how you can help build and strengthen the organizations that already exist or develop a project within them. Um, make sure that you are integrating climate into your child's curriculum, that they understand their history, because believe it or not, understanding your history is where we begin knowing how climate change happened. Um, and taking advantage of all the resources that we have, there are so many things that you could do, everything from doing a learning circle on Zoom, um, to going to a protest, to making sure that you call legislators, but there's something for everybody to do. And it doesn't matter what you're back, it doesn't matter whether you're an accountant or whether you're an, uh, an educator or whether you're an agitator like me, right? Um, there, this is, this is the human rights movement of our time. Um, we need everyone to be meaningfully engaged if we're going to survive the changes that are coming. Um, I want you to think for one second, just close your eyes and imagine what happens with Katrina and what happens with Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. This, this is our future, Sir, uh, you know, Superstorm Sandy, right? Uh, what happened in the Rockaways. Um, this is, climate change is already here. And so how do we survive that? We survive that on holding each other in, in our power, learning as much as we can, knowing when we don't know something and approaching it with humility and identifying people who can school us so that we can, so that we can collectively um, prepare to thrive under the most challenging circumstances. And we've got all the resources. Elizabeth, thank you so very much. It was well worth the wait. Uh, <laughs> to thank have you so much. So to give that baseline of understanding. And as we go on talking specifically about what other folks can do, you know, the homework that I've given people at the beginning of the year was having their representatives information in their phones, their Twitter, with their Twitter account, their email, um, and when they're having meetings, things of that nature, so that they can communicate with those who represent them on a regular basis. And certainly as you learn, as you learn today, more about the different issues that are on the agenda for Black and Indigenous communities, these are the things that you should communicate with those who represent you. But these are also issues that you can used to either organize or join organizations and groups that are working on these issues every day. Elizabeth, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank I know, so, but um, I'm sure you will be connected with us and join us for other conversations very soon. Thank you. I look forward to it. We'll be back with more of Sunday Civics. How can it be that you love the most Welcome back to Sunday Civics. Back when we could play outside, <laughs> I interviewed a organizer regarding the Green New Deal, and we talked about this connection between the environment, infrastructure, and social justice. Take a listen. 
Joining us is Damon Drummer, who is an organizer, a civic innovator, whose work in Chicago has been wildly recognized. And he is currently the co-founder and executive director of New Consensus, the black policy think tank behind the Green New Deal. Welcome to the show. So happy to be here. So So help me with this perspective here, because when people think of the Green New Deal, there is certainly a face that is promoting it in Congress, Mm -hmm. that with Congresswoman Costa. Cortez. There is this conversation about saving the environment, but the Green New Deal is not just about the oh, environment, no, right? No, no. So, talk to what is the Green New Deal? The Green New Deal is a complete, comprehensive uh, transformation of our entire economy uh, in this country. Uh, it is much, much bigger than climate. Uh, much, much bigger than just the environment, and even climate is huge. Climate affects health. Climate is part of the economy, right? So, climate's a big topic. But for most of us at New Consensus, our point of entry on the Green New Deal was not climate, right? Uh, Kaya Chatterjee at the U.S. Climate Action Network says the arc of the moral universe is long without a deadline. And right now, we're seeing that the climate crisis, flooding in New Orleans, flooding in D.C., wildfires in California, this is a very clear and imminent imminent, uh, threat and existential condition uh, that gives us a very hard and fast deadline, 10 to 12 years, to fundamentally transform our economy, to right the wrongs of the past, Uh, to restructure how we value labor over capital, and the list goes on and on. So this is a restructuring of the entire economy. It is more New Deal than it is green. But green plus New Deal, that's the frame because we have to tackle the economic crisis, the racial wealth gap, the regional wealth gap, and the problems of the fossil fuel economy all at the same time because these are interconnected issues and problems and the, uh, the solution has to be interconnected and comprehensive. So we have some time to talk a little bit about some of these aspects, okay. so let's do that. So the, the first thing is, uh, let, let's get the climate conversation out of the way. You know, there's certainly a lot of our infrastructure, a lot of our economy that is caught up in, say, an in, in, in old way of doing things that has a direct effect on climate. And then to your point, there there are some real impacts that cities are dealing with, that rural communities are dealing with, with the change in seasons and weather. I have my grandmother now says we don't have seasons anymore. We just got weather. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that the weather is an impacting what could happen to your town or to your community after a flood, after a tornado, and sort of what what those impacts mean. Mm-hmm. And, and and look who's most affected by these extreme weather events. Right, is the most vulnerable people of color, people who don't have a lot of money, right? And so, that's that's the climate aspect, right? And there are folks who have been working at that intersection for decades that have been like that were the pre-runners and the precursors and the forerunners of what we're calling the Green New Deal now. Yeah, and then on to the environment. So, um, in a previous episode recently, we were talking about, you know, some folks, and, and not to say that you guys are, but that some folks are making it seem like, you know, the Green New Deal is the first, the first people ever to come up with this, <laughs> you know, correlation between, you know, our environment and health outcomes. And I was like. Okay, so native people existed. <laughs> like, yeah, I remember yeah. talking about so this. We, we consider ourselves joining in on a centuries-long fight. Right, right. I mean, even if you're talking about the very first, I would say, conversation that I can remember linking politically the environment, health outcomes, and people of color or poor and rural folks mm-hmm. was about asthma and about air quality and how it is different in rural communities and poor communities than others and how people with political and economic power 
are able to resist those companies or institutions that have real damaging effects to our quality right. of air. Not in my backyard, but definitely on your front porch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So now let's move on to something I am deeply committed to, which is our change of infrastructure. Because all across this country, from roads to bridges to school buildings, I ask people all the time, was the last time you seen a new public school building <laughs> be built, right? About the infrastructure part of the Green New Deal. So let's, let's take school buildings. So I know in Chicago, uh, we have this lead in our pipes problem, as do many, many in New York municipalities City, yes. and communities across the country. Uh, we have school buildings in Chicago where the water fountains uh, are leaded. There's lead, there's leaded water coming out of the water fountains. Uh, and on top of that, these school buildings aren't wired for high-speed internet. And the list goes on and on. I remember in 2005, way, way, way back, I was uh, an intern at the Congressional Research Service, and DC schools shut down in May because it was too hot. I remember that, yeah, I remember that story. And so we have so much upgrading and repair work to do. And so what the Green New Deal is, is like, yes, we need to be more energy efficient, but in so doing, we're also upgrading pipes so that we have clean water and using water more efficiently because we've got a lot of leaky pipes too, right? Yeah, so leaky yeah. leaded pipes need to be completely taken out of not just schools, but every home, every building in this country. And the jobs that will be created in those projects and the local work that is being done by people who live in those zip codes, uh, which requires a change in law and policy, yeah. right? For federal yeah. funding, right? Yeah. Um, layers and layers of things that we have to address directly to have the Green New Deal projects have direct economic impact in communities across the country. And then you also have to think about, you, you have to map that differently. Like, what do we want school buildings to be in our communities? I mean, if you think about the older buildings that exist in our communities that are schools now, they look like laboratories. They look like, you know, sort of old, you know, um, buildings. They are not inviting spaces for children. But we should also have new technology, so we should probably have green roofs. We should probably have open space. We should probably have, you know, sort of really thinking critically and not just be committed to, you know, sometimes, you know, hearing people and they're like, this is just the way we've done it. It's just like, well, that's like not efficient anymore. But look at the old, like, so Ezra, I, I love this conversation because the way we frame the Green New Deal at New Consensus is everything from decarceration to decarbonization. Yeah. It is a, is a complete and comprehensive revisioning of our society. And so what does it mean not just to have better infrastructure and better school buildings, but better paid teachers? Yeah. Right? What does it mean to shift our priorities to the things that we know matter and away from the things that we know aren't as important? Mm -hmm. And that's what it comes down to. And so it is as it is a very comprehensive thing in something, an organization like New Consensus with folks like Rihanna Gunwright, our mm -hmm. policy director, and a lot of us who've done work at the local level, bringing our values and our experience to this national conversation. You know, people mm -hmm. in D.C. look at us like we're, like we're funny. They're like, what, <laughs> what y'all doing here? You know, um, but... The point here is that, you know, when we talk about the issues that matter most to black people, right, if you just start there <laughs> and, and look at the intersectional interactions with poverty, gender, race, and start there and, and work out from there, that's what the Green New Deal is all about. Bringing that lens of analysis, that particular perspective to a range of issues across everything that we care about. And so, yes, you know, there's this idea that the Green New Deal is about polar bears. No, it's about people. And as far as I'm concerned, it's about black people. Uh, and if you focus on black people, 
everybody else's handle. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah I, yeah, I mean, well, I'm of the mindset if you focus and invest in the most vulnerable right. and the marginalized communities in your society, it lifts everyone up. That's right. um, because then you're making sure that your society, that everyone has the opportunity to participate and enjoy in the democracy and the society and the public school education, you know, all mm-hmm. of those things if you're focused on in, in that aspect. So, the, this conversation about sustainability, about our environment, is not just something that only the federal government has a hand in. Your municipality, maybe your county also has to deal with. And when you're battling something like, you know, nature, right, battling weather, mm-hmm. battling those kinds of things, what kind of things should people be advocating for on the local level to address some of those issues? So this is a, this is a great question. So while new consensus is focused on getting the national government uh, to join in on some of the efforts that are being led by people at the grassroots and at the state and local level. Uh, you know, energy policy is set at the state level, right? I think a lot of people, you know, don't, don't know that. that. That's something that when I learned that I was like, wow. So there's a lot that your state can do. There's a lot that your city can do. Again, going back to Chicago, uh, we're about to enter into negotiations for, you know, every city has like a monopoly in uh, energy, right? There's an yep. energy, right? Everybody Absolutely. Not, and usually that monopoly is like negotiated with a state or you know local municipality uh, level entity on what are the terms of that monopoly are going to be. And so Chicago as a city has tremendous power to set the table and enforce uh, portfolio standards, right? States are leading the way on this. We're seeing California. We're seeing the city of New York. Um, LA repackaged their you know entire you know environmental agenda around and sustainability agenda around the Green New Deal, and so mm-hmm. um, people have tremendous power at the state and local level to move forward on this idea of full spectrum sustainability, environmentally sustainable, economically sustainable, and socially sustainable. Thank you so very much for joining us. And as we're continuing this conversation and more issues come up, we'll have to have new consensus in different iterations, yourself and others, to come back and talk to us in more depth about it. Wonderful. Thanks. Thank you. We'll be back next Sunday with more Sunday Civics. Thanks for listening. It's who we are.